Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. Can we thank the band for bringing us into God's presence? Thank you guys. It's so good. Um, I'm Mike. Um, I love you guys. Oh, thanks. Um, this has been such a great uh, community. This is part of what we've been talking about. Brandon talked about it this morning. Um, uh, my wife and I, Kate and I, we've been here part of this community probably for about eight years or so, uh, really ever since we got married. And this has just been a great place. It's been a great community, a great, um, yeah, great family, extended family. Um, and I just, I just love it. Um, we're about to, we're actually, I'm kicking off a new series. Uh, John's letting me kick off a new series, which is fun. Uh, he's up in Montana doing a wedding um, and uh, invited me to, to kick this off. This is fun. The, the series as a whole, this is called God is Bigger and Better, which is always a good thing to be reminded of. And um, we're spending the next eight weeks uh, the closing out the summer, we're spending the, the next eight weeks looking at one passage. It's one section of one of Paul's letters. So we're going to kind of dive deep into that. And uh, in fact, um, why don't we just start off by reading it? it the, the, the passage is Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. If you've got a Bible, you've got an app, whatever else, you might want to pull that out because actually this morning I'm going to kind of jump to a lot of different places, even though the core of it is, is this passage. So you may want to have that ready. <clears throat> but why don't we start by reading this passage, what we're going to be in for the next several weeks. And then, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll dive in from there to what we're going to talk about today. Um, so this is in the middle of a letter. Paul's writing to a church in the city of Ephesus, which is a pretty major city in what's now modern-day Turkey. Um, uh, you know, and, and it's a fair, well, like all of the churches in Paul's day, they were all pretty young because, uh, you know, the church had just started in his lifetime. So um, young church, but, uh, and, and he's got some, some helpful things to say. It's actually, the whole passage is a prayer. And um, I think what's helpful, what will be interesting over the next several weeks is thinking about this prayer, not only what it meant to that church, in the first century and what it meant to them in their space and their time and where they were, but what it might mean for this prayer to be for our community. What would it mean to pray this over Ocean Hills, um, over who we are and what we're about? So Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, that's where we are. It goes like this, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the idea, it's a good prayer, actually. Um, I would want that prayed over me. I want it prayed over us as a community. And the idea over the next several weeks, there's eight verses. We've got eight weeks. We're going to do one verse a week. So I get the first verse. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. That's verse 14. I don't even know if that's a complete sentence. <laughs> but I got 20 minutes <clears throat> on half a sentence. Uh, how are we going to do that? Actually, um, it's a big prayer. It's a really, it's, I mean, it's just a massive prayer for this community. Um, but Paul starts off, he's, we're in the middle of a letter that he's writing. And in, this middle of the le- in the middle of the letter, middle of what he's writing, he comes to this prayer for this church. And he starts with, for this reason, now we're picking it up in the middle. We've got to spend some time, we've got to think about, we have to understand well, why, why is he praying this prayer for this community? So what is for this reason that he starts off? Um, and to do that, I have to tell you a story. It's a little bit of an epic story. So this message is essentially, um, well, there's a <clears throat> there was a movie I first watched, I think when I was in middle school, and it was totally appropriate as a middle schooler and a high schooler. I'm, I'd be surprised if it hasn't been canceled by now, but... Uh, it was a Mel Brooks movie. Anybody ever seen History of the World Part 1? Um, I love that. Actually, my, my favorite part of the movie is the very end when he, they preview History of the World Part 2, which he never made. Um, and one of the scenes is Hitler on ice. And I know that's totally inappropriate, but it's so funny. And just, oh gosh, I'm in trouble. Um, well, this message is, is the history of the world according to Paul. Um, so now I've got the opposite problem. I had 20 minutes to do half a sentence. Now I've got 20 minutes to do the history of the world. <clears throat> okay. So to get to how, why Paul prays this prayer for this, the, this church in Ephesus, we have to understand how Paul views the world. <clears throat> what is it that he sees? What is it that he understands is going on in the world? Where are they in that point in time? What's actually happening? Because uh, to him it's pretty significant. And to do that, we have to understand, we have to understand Paul's history. Actually, not just Paul's history, but like all, all of history. So in Paul's mind, it starts like this. Step one, God creates everything, right? Uh, who knows the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To Paul, that's where everything starts. It starts right there. God creates everything. And in that creation story, it culminates, the actual acts of creation that God does, it culminates. Uh, he starts by separating the land and the water, or the, well, he creates light, and then he's got night and day, and then he's got land and water. Birds, fish, animals that move along the ground, and then he finishes with humanity. That's the culmination of his creation. He puts humanity at the very top, and he does it with a purpose. It's not just like this is, <clears throat> this is you know, the best I can do. It's actually he creates humankind with a job description. I don't know if you realize this. There's a job description for people in Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis 1, 26 through 28. <clears throat> it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind <clears throat> in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We're given a job description to... Now, in this language, it says rule. That's not like dominate. That's, it's take care of. It's cultivate. It's grow it. Grow creation. Govern it. And do it well. It's to... Essentially, the, what's, what's embedded in that passage is a call to humanity to be God's representatives, to be his examples on the earth. The, the, the way I think about it is God creates everything. He creates a world so that his love and care and his good works has some place to play. And he puts human beings at the top of that creation and says, actually, this is the way my love is going to be spread throughout the whole world. It's going to go through you. It's your job to display to the rest of the world to reflect my love and my good works. Does that make sense? So that's where Paul starts. That's how Paul's history of the world begins. God creates humanity as the pinnacle of creation to spread his love to every corner of the globe. There's a problem. Most of you know also... A couple chapters later, Genesis 3, what happens? Humanity rebels. So we were meant, we were designed, humanity was designed to reflect God's love to the world. Humankind decides, actually, we're not going to do that. We're going to govern the world on our own wisdom, based on our own best thinking. We're not going to listen to what our creator says. We're going to do, do it our own way. So... God creates humans to distribute his love throughout the world. Humans refuse. How is God going to spread his love throughout creation? How is he going to accomplish his original purpose? That's a problem. So God has a solution. God, <clears throat> this is step two, God selects one man. He picks one man and eventually his whole family um, to be the vessel through which basically what he says is I'm going to use you to save humankind. So he picks one man. That man is Abraham. Abraham has a family. The family turns into Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jews, and so on. He picks that one family and says, I'm going to tell you exactly who I am and what I'm about. I'm going to show you exactly how you're intended to conduct yourselves, how you're intended to live. And through that family, you're going to display to the rest of the world, this is how it's done. This is how I'm meant, you are meant to display your, my love to the world. And through that, God hopes to rescue the rest of humanity so that he can rescue the creation itself. Does that make sense? This uh, promise all happens to Abraham very early. This is Genesis 22. Actually, Genesis 22, 17 through 18, I love this, these couple verses. This is God talking to Abraham. Uh, Abraham, kind of, there's this big scene. He passes a test. He's told to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac, his son. He 
goes through the motions, and then God stops and says, okay, I understand. You were ready to do this. Like, you were completely obedient to me, faithful. So God says this to Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. I love that. Because you have obeyed me. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. God intends to save humankind that rebelled through one family. And it's important to note, so, you know, Abraham, he does have descendants. He grows into, his family grows into a nation. That becomes Israel. Moses comes along. I'm skipping past hundreds of years of history. Moses comes along. He receives the law from God. And the core of that law is worship one God, worship the creator. And avoid the idols of the nations around you. That's really the core of it. That's, I mean, that's the first commandment. So you start there. Worship the one God. Worship the creator. And everything else, ignore. Well, there's a problem. What does Israel do? Over hundreds and hundreds of years, they do exactly what humanity had done. They also rebel against the creator. And they become just like all the other nations around them. They stop worshiping the one creator. They worship everything that's around them. They worship the creation itself. They worship idols. And as a consequence, as part of this, Israel, if you know this story, they, they, they do develop into a nation. There's, a, you know, there's, you get David and then you get Solomon. You get two different kingdoms and all this sort of thing. It's hundreds of years. I'm skipping past. But through all of this, they show themselves unfaithful to God. And as a result, they get conquered and they get exiled. They get pulled out of their homeland and distributed throughout all over the place, really. I should also say somewhere in there, one of the things that makes Israel unique as a people, well, maybe not as a people, but I mean, in, the, in Paul's story, Paul's story of, of, of creation and, and, and the history of the world, Israel had the one temple that housed the living God. They had that temple in their midst, and they have stories of God filling that temple, and they knew God somehow lived in their midst, and that was central to who they were. But then, of course, when they're conquered, after they've rebelled, they get hauled out of there, the temple's destroyed, now they're dispersing, God doesn't live in their midst. At least that's the feeling, that's the sense. So Israel's rebelled. Paul actually picks up this theme directly in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2, chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 3. He's, uh, he's talking about, he's saying us, he's talking about himself and his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites. Um, and the them he's talking about are basically like pagan Gentiles. Um, people who didn't, don't know God, don't, don't know who he is, worship idols. Uh, Ephesians 2.3 says, all of us, all of us Jews, also lived among them, the, the rest of the world at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of death or deserving of wrath. In Paul's worldview, if you're not worshiping the one creator, if you're not following him, 
you are you're following a pattern that only leads to your own destruction. And basically the destruction of everything around you is how it amounts to it. And he believed this was true of the other nations. He also believed it had become true of Israel. It had become true of the Jews. They had done exactly what everyone else had done. Even though they were called out specifically to, tr to be a special and unique people, they rejected that purpose. So now they are just like everyone else. Now again, skipping over several hundred years, but eventually there are some Jews who do get to return to their homeland. They actually come back to Israel, the promised land, Palestine, that region. Um, but there's a theme, there's a motif that runs through some of the latter books in the Old Testament where the Jews are back in their homeland, they're back in Jerusalem, they're back in Palestine. They actually recreate some form of temple, but there's this line through there, there's this thought th all the way through um, that portion of the Old Testament where they still sense that even though they're back and even though they've rebuilt a temple, God's not there. He hasn't returned to them. You can pick this up in parts of Malachi. You can pick this up in Nehemiah, a few other places. Um, they come back, but they still sense that God is distant, or at least they're distant from God, one, one way or the other, depending on your point of view. Um, and they're desperate for God's return. And I think this is actually, and they know their history, just like Paul did. They know their history. And so there's something that starts to develop uh, in Jews, especially by Paul's day, in fact, Paul thought this himself when he was, so before he was Paul, he was Saul, he was a Pharisee. Um, as a Pharisee, I think Pharisees, we give them kind of a bad rap. They were really well-meaning people. Pharisees knew their past. They knew their history. They knew what had gone wrong. They knew that they had been exiled and God was distant because they as a people had rejected him and worshiped other gods. They knew that was true. And so Paul had this idea, and many of his fellow Pharisees would have had the same idea, that now that they're back in their original homeland, a good portion of them, and God is distant, we need God to come back. How can we, how can we help that happen? How can we speed that up? And in his mind, the best way we can do it, we have to follow the law as closely as we can. And we have to distance ourselves from the other gods that got us in trouble in the first place. Now, to him and many of the other Pharisees, a lot of the other Jews, that also means, well, we better avoid Gentiles altogether. And so Jews kind of become this, oh, this is going to be problematic. Uh, they become this really weird people. They keep to themselves. They... Keep in, they stay in their own communities. They worship together, of course, in their own synagogues, in their own temples, but they try to avoid Gentiles altogether because that's what got, us in, that's what got them into hot water in the first place. Does that make sense? So they won't associate with Gentiles. They won't eat with them. They won't commune with them. They won't participate in the civic festivals and events, which you know, probably were, you know, had a lot of pagan overtones anyway, so that was probably a good idea. Um, but they come across as... Uh, 
this weird people. They, won't, they, they will avoid Gentiles at all costs. So they create this huge division between themselves and really all the other peoples around them. And this is particularly true in places like Ephesus, which is not in the heart of their homeland. It's in, you know, what was then called Asia. Now it's, now it's called, you know, we call it modern-day Turkey. Um, but a cosmopolitan city that's going to have all sorts of people all around you. So they distance themselves, and you end up with two groups from a Jewish point of view. You've got Gentiles, you've got Jews. The Jews won't associate with them. They thought this was going to help you know, basically God speed things up. God kind of come to their rescue and, and, and save them. So let me review because I've spent a lot of time there. We started over here. God creates everything. He puts humanity at the very top to govern it, to spread his love, and to spread his good works throughout every corner of creation, right? Humanity rebels. Now you got to save humanity. If you're going to get back to the original purpose, you have to save and rescue human beings. So God calls one man, and he calls his family up and says, you're going to be the example. And through that, you're going to rescue humanity so that we can get back to work spreading my love and good works throughout creation. But that one family also rebels. And so now you've got like a double or maybe triple, I'm not sure how many steps we've gotten to. We've basically got this compound problem. All of these things have to be resolved for God to be faithful to what, he, what he's done. And this is the story of the world from Paul's perspective right up until about 20, 25 years or so before he writes this letter to the Ephesians. Because something significant happens at that time. Anyone want to take a guess? I hear mumblings. Uh, we're kind of sure. We're not so sure. We got some ideas. Yeah, this is where Jesus shows up. Anybody ever wonder... Um, why Jesus um, was Jewish? Anybody wonder why that was the case? I mean, why couldn't he have been, I don't know, for example, like, I don't know, why couldn't he have been, I don't know, Chinese, Roman, Greek? Why couldn't he have been from Sub-Saharan Africa? Why couldn't he have been from the Americas? Uh, why did he have to be Jewish, specifically? It's because God is completely faithful to every promise he's given from the very start. And if he called up one family, one man and his family to save humanity, God is so good. He is so much better than we think. He, like, if it were me, I'd be like, well, that didn't work out. I'm starting over. Let me wipe this away. Let me throw this in garbage. I'm going to start with something fresh, something new. God says, no, I'm going to restore that. That's gone, I was going to say all the hell, but that's not quite right. Uh, that's gone very badly. Uh, I'm going to fix that. As bad as that looks, I'm going to restore that. Jew Jesus had to be a Jew so that he could be faithful to, to that first promise. That these people, that this, this one family is the means through which I'm going to save humanity. So he raises up one person who does exactly what Israel was always meant to do. Jesus lives his entire life. Um, John says it in his gospel. Jesus says it a couple different times. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. 
So he lives his entire life doing exactly what Israel was meant to do, worshiping the one creator, listening to him, doing exactly what he had intended him to do. And so he goes to the cross. There's a line from a, a very little-known uh, missionary from the middle of the 20th century. Uh, his name is Stephen Neal. He has, a, he has a line that when Jesus dies, when Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, the whole creation says, at last, we've seen a man. Now they understand what the machine was made for. I love that. Jesus lives his entire life in faithful obedience to God, and now we get to see that's what we were meant to be. That's who we were supposed to be in the first place. So Jesus lives his whole life doing exactly what Israel was meant to do, and, uh, and as a result, as a result, fulfilling law, he accomplishes Israel's mission. And Israel's mission was to rescue humanity. They were supposed to be the example. Now we've got that example. But what Jesus accomplishes isn't just the rescue of Israel. He accomplishes the rescue and redemption of all of humanity. It's not just about one family. It's about everybody. So when Jesus hangs on that cross, breathes his last, what does he offer? He offers forgiveness not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people everywhere. Anyone who might hear the story and encounter him. He takes on himself the sin of the entire world, our rebellion, no matter what family we came from, he takes on himself all of it. And in his exchange, he gives forgiveness. Paul picks up this theme also in the early chapters in, Ep in Ephesians. Many of you will know this passage. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I had to memorize this verse, these verses when I was like six years old. Um, and it was explained to me, I think at the time, probably something like, you know, this is the whole gospel. This is what it boils down to. This is the core of it. Many of you will probably know it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is great, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Is that familiar to anybody? This is how all of humanity is saved. Christ on the cross, exchanging forgiveness for our sinfulness and rebellion. And so by doing that, Jesus opens up and offers forgiveness and God's spirit to take up residence among all of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. This is huge for Paul's own day, where there was that huge separation between Jews and Gentiles. This is a big theme also in Ephesians. He says um, in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, he picks this, this idea up, uh, talking to the church in Ephesus. He's, and here he's talking to, I think specifically, the Gentiles there in Ephesus, in the, the, the non-Jewish Christians there. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So we're all together in this. And also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. So this is, remember, Israel had a temple in which God lived in their midst. Now, it's all the people of God who make up that temple. 
In him, you too are being built together to become uh, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here we are, one people. And I think about this especially now, in our day, in this society. I don't know how many directions from which this world can try to put divisions in between each of us. But they're trying their best to find an infinite number. I mean, name the category. And there is a very loud voice in our culture saying, you should look at each other as enemies. You should look at each other as for your differences rather than for the way you complement one another, for the way you can be united or whatever else. Name the category. There's a way to divide us. And this was true in Paul's day as well. And this was so important to him that Jews and Gentiles form one family with Christ at the middle because that was the most important thing that could be said about any of them. Well, where are we in this history? Christ has rescued the Jews. He's rescued Israel, accomplished their purpose. And by doing that, he stood in this place to rescue all of humanity. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's by grace you've been saved. When I was six, I was told that was the whole gospel, but they stopped short. They didn't read the next, they didn't teach me to memorize the next verse, and they probably should have. Uh, and no, I'm not casting blame on my old church. I love those people uh, where I grew up when I was six. Uh, at any rate, they stopped short because Ephesians 2.10 gets us right back to this spot. Ephesians 2.10. So it's by grace you've been saved, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He made the whole world so that he could spread his love. His love and good works would have a playground in which to express itself. He put humanity at the top of that creation and said, it's through you I'm going to display this love. And now he's brought us all the way back. And it's through the work of Christ and it's through the unity that he offers us as a community, certainly the Ephesians, that that love can now again be displayed to every corner of the world because it needs it. It needs it very badly. We were made for good works. We were made to enjoy his presence. We were made to be saved, but with an end in mind. We've got work to do. This was true of the church in Ephesus. I think it's true of us. And I know that this community does a lot of amazing things in Jesus' name. I was just catching up uh, a couple weeks ago with Andrew Probert. I, did, I saw it. There you are. Just got back from uh, Royal Family Kids Camp. Who else was in Royal Family Kids Camp? Yeah, a couple of you. Uh, Amazing work showing and distributing love to foster kids who badly, badly need it. Uh, how many of you went to uh, Mexico a month or so ago with Amor? Who went? Or that was spring break, wasn't it? 
few of you did that. Um, building homes and building hope in another community. How many of you have spent afternoons with young kids at Franklin Elementary? Reading to these children who are in a culture that isn't where they grew up, or at least where their parents didn't, you know, not where their parents grew up. And they desperately need people to come around them and show them how to flourish in this new community. How many of you spend time in Alameda Park um, giving, distributing food and listening to stories of some of the homeless folks in our community? And, oh, there's another one I just I thought of. How many of you have run a marathon? <laughs> um, actually, not me. I haven't. I started training, then I got hurt, and, you know, whatever. But uh, raising money to give opportunity for clean water and new life for families halfway around the world. And we could go on, there's all sorts of things, big and small, that this community does because God has called us to do it. Good works, ways to spread God's love, and there's all sorts of other stories that I don't know, individual stories that you do as a person or as a family, and you turn to your neighbors, and you turn to your coworkers, you turn to the community around you, and you say, God is good, and I'm one of his. And you need something right now. I'm going to provide. I'm going to step up. I'm going to show you what his love looks like for where you are right now. And I love that we're spending the next several weeks in this prayer because if we're going to be called to the kinds of good works that Paul's talking about, the kinds of work that God has placed on all of humanity, the people who name him as their God, we're going to need really big prayers like this. I know it's really small font. You can't see it. Um, we're going to need really big prayers like this because there's a really big job to do and a really big God who's behind us ready to do it. I think it'd be fun to close out praying this prayer over ourselves. I think it'd be really cool, actually, if you took a copy, maybe write it down on a piece of paper, print it out, whatever, make it look really nice if, if that's your thing, you know, some of you are calligraphers, you can you know, really do it up. But have it in front of you over the next several weeks, this prayer from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Pray it over yourself every day. Pray it over yourself and this community for the next couple months. I, I'm curious to find out what happens. I think there's a lot of good works that we do as a church. I wonder if there's something new that God's wanting to call out of us, that's what God's wanting to surface, for maybe for us as a church, maybe for you as an individual, that God's saying, there's good works I've re made ready for you. I've prepared this in advance for you to do in your community, in your family, in your workspace, in this city. And see what he brings to the surface. See how he encourages and challenges us in this. So why don't you stand with me?
And we're going to put Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 on the screen. We're going to pray this as, well, a prayer for ourselves, a prayer for our community. And, and I want us to be, over the next several weeks, I want us to be listening. What is God whispering in your heart? What is God raising in your mind? A, a word, a calling, a, 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 an inkling that won't leave you alone. Maybe that's something we all need. Maybe that's something we all need to pursue. But whatever it is, we're likely going to need this kind of encouragement to do it. Why don't you put your hands over your hearts? <clears throat> We're going to pray this prayer together. The band's going to lead us back into a couple songs. The prayer teams will come up if you need prayer, maybe over something like this. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you've got uh, some kind of physical issue that needs to be dealt with. Maybe you just need some encouragement. Whatever it is, they're up front for you. But let's pray this together. This is Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.